The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book three, Hunger Season. Chapter 8, Hampton Harbor Route 101 devolved from a divided four-lane expressway to a two-lane highway that curved its way through low salt marshes. The road stopped at a low seawall. Hampton Beach, typically a seething mass of sunburned humanity in the summer, was a barren expanse of gray sand. The Atlantic stretched before them. A moment's pause to take it in seemed in order. Tyler turned right to follow 1A down the coast. Hampton Harbor was not so desolate as the country they had just driven through. People walked among the small clabbered houses and buildings that lined the coastal road. The sight of a truck in motion caused many of the pedestrians to stop and stare as the old Ford rolled by. Several pedestrians eyed the trailer of firewood, commented to companions, and pointed. "'Sure looks like people are doing something here.' Nick observed. This is encouraging. Wonder what's in all those pushcarts. Tyler slowed down to ask directions where fish might be found. The man said they should continue down to the triangle, then bear right on Harbor Road. Tyler asked what people had in the carts that they were pushing around. The man said it varied, clothing, salvaged wood, or sometimes kelp. Some had razor clams, blue mussels, or soft-shell clams that they had dug up on the flats. "'I'm going to get out here and do me some salesmanship,' said Charles. "'I'll walk down and meet you guys at the docks. Park someplace obvious.' He grabbed an ear of Clyde's corn from the bag he brought and a log of firewood. "'Now I'll see if I can scare up some interest in our goods on my way down to the docks.' The congestion of pedestrians crossing the road allowed for only a slow roll toward the docks. They appeared to be setting up trading booths under tarp canopies. Well, looks like we showed up on a good day, eh? Martin said. Looks like market day for them. Tyler turned right onto Harbor Road. The narrow street was made narrower still, with boxes and crates and barrels stacked along the sides of the wooden buildings. After a bend in the road, the inner harbor came into view. Several modest fishing boats sat at moorings. Tyler stopped to ask a barrel-shaped man where he might find some fish for trade. The man pointed to a low gray building between two tall houses. "'I'll just pull down over there,' Tyler said. "'This seems an obvious-looking place to leave the truck. "'I'll go on foot and see what's up there. "'You guys stand watch.' "'Well, let's leave the truck idling,' Martin said. "'Who knows if we'll have to pull around to someplace else or what. "'I don't want to do a cold restart if I don't have to.' Tyler squared up his watch cap and tugged his coat down to make sure it covered his holster. He waved and strode up the road toward the gray building. "'I half thought we'd find brush or scrap wood that we could chip up for fuel,' Martin said. "'But things look picked clean down here.' "'Looks like they're disassembling fences and sheds,' said Nick. "'And look at that house back there, behind the yellow one. Looks like they're taking it apart board by board.' Maybe these people will be keen to trade for firewood. Nick stood watch in front of the truck. Martin used the hatchet to chip up a couple of firewood splits. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw a little old man peek around the corner of a low building. The man eventually walked up to the back of the truck. You haven't heard an engine idling for weeks. 
"'Where did you guys get all the gas?' asked the grizzled old man. "'You got any to trade?' "'Uh, no, sorry,' said Martin. Uh, "'This is wood gas.' He held up the whittled log and hatchet. He pointed to the burner fastened in the corner of the flatbed. "'It's kind of a pain to restart it. We're just here for a little while to trade for some fish. Our buddies are out trying to wheel and deal right now. Since we don't plan to be here long, it's better to keep it idling.' The man did a slow, oh, I see, nod, and rubbed his chin. "'So if you fellers are just idling, uh, waiting for your friends, uh, you think maybe I could hook up my jumper cables and charge my battery?' He nodded eagerly in support of his own idea. Martin gave Nick a quick, uh, what do you think, look. Nick shrugged. They weren't doing much beyond waiting. Martin told the old man yes, but to hurry, since they didn't know how long they'd be there. The old man scurried off, his bowed legs giving him a chimp-like galloping run. The man returned a short while later, carrying a golf cart battery and jumper cables. I sure do appreciate this, fellers. Nick hooked up the cables to the battery. I really need to go out tomorrow, but my battery, she's just got no more juice. Uh, do you go out to fish? asked Martin. And we came here from Cheshire looking to trade for some. We've got a bag of corn and half a quart of firewood. I'd sure like to trade you for some of that firewood. Yeah, but I ain't got much to nothing for trade. Uh, not yet, anyhow. Uh, name's Gilmore, by the by. Uh, folks just call me Gil. Uh, well, I'm Martin, and uh, that's Nick. Howdies, howdies. Uh, yep. We went out yesterday looking to catch some. Thought we had it made. I found a big school of blues. It's late in the season for blues. They should have headed south by now. But this bunch, uh, they still out there. Uh, is that what people catch here? Blues? Oh, not so much. Uh, a couple of the big boats that were already out when things went dark came back with a hold full of haddock and some flounder. Small boats have been bringing in shellfish or whatever they can catch on the line. Them littler boats are finding it easier to deal up some fuel. Folks inland have been pooling their heating oil for shares at a catch. Uh, works okay for the littler boats. Uh, they're not so thirsty on the fuel if you keep them down around two or three knots. Is that what you have, Gil? asked Martin. That's a pretty small battery for cranking a diesel engine. I shoot, no, ain't got no diesel. Wendelin's a schooner. Not your prettiest, nor your fastest. But she's a sturdy old gal and weathered plenty of blow that sends them sleek dolls in for shelter. Nah, battery is for my fish finder and the radio. Did me fine for a couple of weeks, but chasing them blues used it up. I really got to get out tomorrow. It could be gone after tomorrow. Uh, well, glad we could help, Martin pointed to the battery. Ah, oh, yeah, thanks, Gil said. Really gonna need all the help I can get tomorrow. Butch is out of action, no. Got himself sick on something. Got the runs real bad. If he ain't better by the morning, it's just going to be me and Edwin. Gil stared off it to the side, as if talking to himself. Figure we can lash her down to the beam reach and takes both of us to lay the net. Gil faced Martin and Nick. I uh, say, I don't suppose you, being uh, hill folks and all, uh, that one of you could handle a helm? Gil began to chuckle at his absurd question. Well, actually, Martin said, I used to sail. No, Gil was caught off guard. 
It's been many years. My dad had a 24-foot sloop for a while. We'd take it out in Narragansett Bay or Long Island. A couple of times we'd run out to the islands, but like I said, it's been years. Ah, shoot, Dad, that don't matter. Once you know how to read a sail and feel the boat's heel, it never leaves you. Renner with a jib? Oh, almost always. Spinnaker? Oh, sometimes. Topsail? Martin looked at Gil with a puzzled look. Topsail? It wasn't gaff-rigged. Ah, that's okay, that's okay, Gil said with a wave. I was just testing you. Uh, don't suppose I could talk you into going out with us tomorrow, could I? Uh, give you a share of the catch, uh, ten percent. And that ain't just blowing smoke, neither. Uh, me and Edwin think we got it figured this time. If we can circle them blues, we can pull in a pretty haul. Well, it sounds interesting. Martin was intrigued. He wasn't entirely sure how he could handle a schooner alone while the other two men handled the nets. The prospect didn't seem to worry Gill, so he figured it might not be too challenging. The time factor was unknown. Uh, well, I'm not sure how long we'll be here, Martin cautioned. Uh, we could leave tonight. Gosh, shoot, that's so close. But maybe we could help your other guy, Butch, said Martin. Maybe he'll feel better by tomorrow. I've got some first aid stuff with me. Maybe we can uh, clear up his runs. Oh, now, that would be great, said Gil. You fellers are all right, eh, for hill folks. Martin dug his first aid pack out of his backpack. Nick looked a little worried about guarding the truck alone. Gil tried to reassure Nick that his place was just around the corner so they'd hear if he shouted. The prospect of needing to shout didn't comfort Nick. When Martin entered Gil's little house, his throat immediately closed up from the thick stench of diarrhea. His eyes began to water. Martin gasped. He tried not to breathe. He tried not to gag. Hey, yep, it's a bit strong, but uh, we don't like to open the windows because it lets out what little heat we got, said Gil. Uh, that's Edwin, he pointed to a tall man, bent over a small wood stove. He looked like he was carved out of wood. Ed, uh, this here's Martin. Martin waved, not eager to enter the room deep enough to offer a hand to shake. Edwin just locked eyes for a moment. Mutual acknowledgment seemed sufficient for an introduction. Edwin then returned to feeding chunks of fencing into the stove. Butch was stretched out on a cot, wearing only shorts and a wet t-shirt. He was sweaty and pale. Gil urged him to drink more water. Martin stayed just inside the door. He didn't want to risk getting sick in their new world without medical safety nets. Don't you worry, said Gil. He ain't catching. I figure it was something he ate. Well, I'm no medic, but I think that man needs a doctor. Oh, I agree, said Gil, but we ain't a got one. Heard there was one up in Rye Summers, but we got no way to get him up there, even if I knew where to go. Martin dug around in an inner pocket for his little travel packs of Imodium. Uh, here, give him these. Martin handed the packs to Gil. The instructions are on the back. These should slow down his runs, at least keep him from dehydrating, Maybe get him through working out whatever's in his system. Gil gave Butch two tablets and urged him to drink more. Butch's hand trembled too much to hold the glass. Gil dabbed at Butch's sweaty face and arms. Martin had to step back out of the front door for some fresh air. Gil emerged a short while later. I sure hope that stuff helps, Butch. 
He's a darn fine deckhand. Yeah, Windeline likes him, too. But he's in rough shape. Well, he sure is. Well, here's some aspirin, too. Maybe it'll get his fever down. The sound of boisterous voices caught their attention. When they had stepped around the corner, a dark green Humvee was parked alongside the Ford. Tyler and one of the soldiers were engaged in vigorous hugs, slaps, and secret handshakes. "'There you are,' called out Tyler. "'Hey, Martin, come over here and meet Kutch. This here is Sergeant McCutcheon.' "'Hey, y'all. Like you said, I'm Kutch. This here's D'Souza, Jermaine, and Robert Shaw.' Tyler introduced his group. "'Kutch and me were stationed near each other in Iraq.' Different units, but close enough to beat their butts at volleyball every time. Yeah, said Kutch, but we could drink you sorry infantry under the table. Yeah, which explains your massive skills at the set and spike, laughed Tyler. Oh, there's more to life than volleyball, my man. You gotta think outside of the box, said Kutch. Hey, you gotta think outside of the bottle, old buddy. Tyler smacked Kutch on the arm. "'I could hardly believe it when I ran into your brother in town,' said Kutch. "'I recognized his name tag right away,' said Charles. "'I told him you were down here somewhere, and he insisted on driving down right away to find you. "'I was starting to get some interest up in town. "'I bet I could work up a couple of deals, but it'll take more time.' "'Why on earth were you down here, Kutch?' Tyler asked. Yeah, I was on a seeking detain patrol, working with the state police. Guess there's reports of bad guys preying on the people somewheres along 101. I haven't seen them yet in four passes. Lots of scat, but no coyotes. The eight men all agreed to camp in their vehicles there at the waterfront. Martin powered down the gasifier. The guardsmen were accustomed to sleeping in their Humvee. Martin and Charles rigged up tarps to make a tent out of the flatbed. Two men could sleep in the cab, one in the flatbed and one on watch. Gill offered to have the men stay at his house, but Martin politely declined for them. They had to guard their firewood, after all. Gill understood. While Tyler and Kutch relived old adventures and talked about the whereabouts of scores of people that Martin didn't know, Martin looked for some high ground. A two-story house up the road was partially disassembled in front. The external stairway in the back was still intact, but missing its railing. It was nearly six o'clock. Martin wanted to try to get Ray on the radio. The signal was weak. Martin could make out Ray's voice talking through the static but could only hear Ray's half of the conversation. He imagined it was Walter on the other end. Martin keyed in. Um, hello? Ray? Can, can you hear me, Ray? There was only a garble of static at the other end. Martin pressed the high power button. Hello, Ray? This is Newshawk's father-in-law. Could you get a message to Walter? There was more garble and static. Martin hoped that Ray's radio could pick him up better than he could pick up Ray. Newshawk doesn't have her radio. I do. Please get her a message that we made it. But we will be staying another day, at least. Martin wanted to think that he could make out words amid the buzzing and hissing, but he was probably only fooling himself. 
Tell Newshawk we made it okay. He spoke loudly and slowly, signing off. He had to wonder if his message really made it through. Perhaps Ray only heard the same thing that he did, and they only exchanged unintelligible garble. What hope he had was thin. The night in the back of the truck was cold. Martin's lightweight sleeping bag was handy for how small it rolled up, but not quite up to the cold autumn nights. It's hard to stay asleep when cold. Nonetheless, it was warmer than his stint on watch. Hampton Harbor was quiet, but never as totally quiet as his woods back home. There was always the gentle lap of waves against pilings, or the soft slap of a line against a hull somewhere. Martin awoke to the sound of voices trying to talk quietly, but not being too successful at it. Tyler, Charles, and Kutch were planning something. Martin tried to fluff up his clothes and coat to provide more insulation. Nick and the other guardsmen emerged, too, stretching, coughing, and trying to decide where was the best place to take their morning leak. The half-a-house that Martin used as his radio tower got the nod. Tyler and Kutch had been cooking up some grand scheme before dawn. Martin could tell by the mischievous little boy looks in their eyes that it had to involve some danger. He wondered if he had that look in his own eyes when he planned to fly his bicycle off the garage roof using cardboard wings. Before Tyler could decide where to begin explaining their plan, Gil emerged from around the corner. Yeah, morning, fellers. You're a chatty little bunch for such a wee hour. Uh, how's Butch doing? Martin asked. Ah, that's why I am here. Uh, he, he's better. Uh, thanks for them pills and such. Uh, fever's down, and he hasn't gone a-squirtin' since last night. He's sitting up and able to hold his own glass now. Solid progress. Uh, but he's still in no shape to crew. I'm here to ask you if you'll crew with us. Martin hesitated. It was quite a step up from helping his father sail the sloop to crewing on a schooner. His father was the master sailor. Martin was the obedient deckhand. He really wanted to stay on dry land and make some more trading deals. Firewood for fish. Oh, come on, pleaded Gil. Dim blues are gonna be gone soon. Oh, what if I give you a quarter of the catch? What do you say, a quarter? Gil tried an encouraging smile, but he looked more like a wrinkled jack-o'-lantern than a smooth car salesman. A quarter of his catch? Charles asked. Hey, Martin, you should totally take him up on that. I need today to wheel and deal some trades. Tyler Kutch and his boys have their little project they want to work on. Yeah, go for it, I say. Martin glared at Charles. He didn't like being pushed. Oh, uh, did I screw something up? Uh, were you trying to hold out for a third or something? Oh, sorry, man. I, I didn't think. No, that's okay, said Martin. Okay, Gil, I'll crew on this one trip. But then I've got to get back so we can get our stuff home. Oh, that would be great. Oh, that's great. Gil clapped his hands and did a stiff little jig. Might be out until later this afternoon, uh, but back before dark, uh, guaranteed. Uh, Windoline don't like the dark anyhow. Martin grabbed a few items from his bag and followed Gil to his house. He felt both honored and endangered, like being selected as the next contestant to wrestle the circus bear. Uh, do you want me to help row? Martin asked. Oh, nah, 
said Gil. Edwin likes to row. The gaunt wooden man pulled at the long oars that surged the little skiff forward in a slow-motion galloping rhythm. I set up my own mooring beyond the bridge, said Gil. I'll be darned if I'm going to ship that mainmast just to get under that stupid bridge. Besides, Wendelin don't mind a little open water. The bow of the skiff was pointed toward a lone two-masted boat with a green hull, riding at a mooring buoy behind the stone jetty. A light breeze from the northwest raised a carpet of small waves in the outer harbor. "'She's not much to look at,' said Gill. "'Really only a step up from a scow, to be honest.' He lowered his voice. Uh, "'But don't tell her I said that. She can get right moody if you don't call her beautiful.' Edwin raised one eyebrow as a sign of agreement. Martin suddenly realized that Edwin reminded him of Lurch on the Adams Family TV show. Lurch, rendered as a chainsaw sculpture. She was built as a cargo schooner back in the thirties, doing salt and sand trade in the main coast. Somewhere in the sixties some guy bought her and had her hold fitted out with benches and put a striped canopy over it. Hey, used her for a touristy tour boat. Uh, poor Wendelin, hauling around fat tourist butts for a living. When I got her, I ripped all that out. Did a fair business taking folks out to thrall. She liked the work. At least it was fishing. Then, when the lights went out and the fuel started to dry up, well, Edwin Butch and me figured we could go into drift netting. We might be the only ones still able to catch fish, you know. Uh, got me a nice purse saying off of a guy who couldn't go out no more. Uh, no fuel, you see. Edwin stopped rowing. The skiff coasted around to Wendelin's port side. He climbed aboard. Martin handed up the many buckets of ice that filled the floor of the skiff. Gill had been setting buckets of water out to freeze at night. He was clearly anticipating having something to keep chilled in the hold. With the last of the ice buckets aboard, Martin climbed over the lifelines awkwardly. Wearing both of his shirts, his sweater, and a coat made him puffy and limited his range of motion. He knew he would get cold in the ocean breeze. His ears were already cold. Along the starboard side of Wendeline, a long black net lay arranged in dense folds. Yellow floats marked the top margin. Yeah, last time we tried laying net to windward while on a beam reach. Gill said, with arm gestures. Figured to tack her up and come around. It didn't work. Couldn't get to windward enough. Ended up sailing between the blues and my net. That's when Edwin got the idea to lay net to lee, bear off, and then tack back up. Used the drift to our advantage. Martin couldn't imagine Edwin speaking at all, let alone being enthusiastic with an idea. That's where you come in, young hillsider. It takes two of us to lay the net. Your job will be to man the helm. Uh, wait, what? Martin gasped. I'm supposed to manage three sails all by myself and steer? Gill waved off Martin's concerns. Oh, bah! Butch does it. You can too. A cakewalk. We'll leave her in trim for a loose tack. You bear off and come around. Uh, she'll be all set for tacking back up. Uh, understand? Martin nodded, but his mind wasn't drawing any lines on his mental whiteboard. He held a hollow smile. His father usually handled the mainsail on the sloop. Martin manned the jib. Now he was expected to do it all? He volunteered to help, not do it all. We'll be laying net to lee while you're better enough. 
You come around and make for the flag at the end of our net. Uh, you're up for that, right? Fine time to ask me that, Martin thought. He was already standing on the deck. Oh, good, good, continued Gil. You know you're running rigging, I'm sure. This here's the winch for a staysail. This one's for the fore. That one there's for the main. I've run her single-handed a few times. She's a bit of a handful on your own, eh, but Wendelines have forgiven girl, ancient darling. He stroked the roof of the deckhouse. Gill pulled the skiff around to the bow, secured it to the mooring buoy, and cast off. Wendeline began to drift backward in the light breeze. Both Gill and Edwin pulled on the halyards, raising the foresail. The sail fluttered in the breeze. Wendeline slowly rotated to the right. Gill let out the sheet, allowing the boom enough rope to swing wide over the starboard side. The sail filled, and the boat settled some at the bow. She began pushing awake as she ran with the wind. Oh, you're doing great, said Gill. When we're clear of the jetty, uh, pull her up close on a port tack. Uh, I'll trim her in. Okay, Martin thought. Here we go. Uh, out to sea. I hope he's right about that cakewalk. As the light pole at the end of the stone jetty slipped behind them, the surface of the water grew darker with surface ripples from an unchecked breeze. Gill and Edwin unfurled the main. Uh, we're going to hoist the main and trim it in. You'll know when it's time to bear up. Both men hauled on halyards. The gaff at the top of the big sail climbed the mast in surges. When the main was peaked up tight, it was time. Helm to weather, called out Martin. Ready, called back Gill. Martin turned the helm to weather. Wendelene turned left. Instead of wind at their back, the wind chilled the left side of Martin's face. The big mainsail fluttered a little until Gill pulled the boom in. As the sail bellied tight, Wendelene leaned to starboard. Martin could feel the surge of speed. Clear of the outer harbor, the larger waves slapped against the side. Gill pointed northeast the heading he wanted Martin to steer. The wind stayed steady, requiring little input from the wheel as they rode the gentle swells. Passing the end of the jetty was one of those thresholds that prompts a person to think. They were headed out to sea. Martin didn't fear the sea, but had a serious respect for it. His father had instilled that. The wind and sea were powerful beyond comprehension. Such power is humbling. The sea didn't care about a person's social status, civil rights, or feelings. Yet today, the risk seemed low. The breeze was modest, the swells were low and spaced wide apart. The wind direction and clear sky suggested that any rough weather was hundreds of miles south of them. The southern and eastern horizons were nothing but haze. Weather trouble wasn't likely. When he was standing beside Charles's truck, Martin imagined that a quarter of Gill's catch might be something like a 55-gallon drum full of fish, a fine supply of protein, and a nice hedge against the Corn King's monopoly. Was a drum of fish just lottery dreaming? A quarter of a catch might turn out to be a five-gallon pail only half full. A whole day's effort for a half a bucket of fish would be embarrassing. Martin comforted himself that it would still be something— he wasn't even supposed to be on this trip. In that sense, even half a bucket of fish was a bonus. They sailed northeast until land was just a purple stripe along the western horizon. 
Looking up at the full sails, Martin smiled. He recalled how much he marveled, as a boy, at the power of just wind to propel boats. Yet the magic seemed so unnecessary. His boyish wisdom thought all that work to man sails was a waste of effort, when engines were so much easier. Now, with fuel hard to come by, using the wind felt liberating. Edwin stood near the bow, an impassable statue, at the head of the net. Gill had climbed up the starboard shrouds, peering southeast. His head panned back and forth as he scanned for clues. Aha! I think I see him, Gill announced. He slid down the shrouds, landing on the deck with a thud. There's a couple of ridges along the bottom here. They were hanging about the ridges yesterday. Uh, this is it, Hillsider. Uh, we'll throw some chum to draw em in and lay net around em. Make ready to bear away. Edwin emerged from below with two orange buckets. He stood ready at the stern. Gill stood in the deckhouse, his hands cupped around his fish finder. Crossing the first ridge, he said to no one in particular. Oh, 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 they're here, right sure, and not too deep neither. Uh, second ridge is coming up. Gill leaned back so he could see Edwin through the doorway. Uh, let him go by. Edwin scooped out handfuls of fish guts, chunks of silvery skin, and other slimy bits, and flung them as far to starboard as his long arms could fling. He alternated slinging with his left or his right, a bucket for each hand. The chum created an oily slick. Martin was glad to be upwind of the chum buckets. Uh, they'd grown quite ripe. Okay, Hillsider, uh, we'll trim sail. You bear away gentle and hold her in a steady wheel. We'll lay net as we come around. Uh, um... Martin had fast-forwarded a mental video of what Gill described. You mean jibe? Martin's father disliked the jibe maneuver and avoided it whenever he could. When forced to turn his sloop, wind over the stern, the boom always swung across with malice and slammed so hard against the sheet lines that Martin expected the pulleys to rip off. Well, sure, we can't no go all the way around without jibin'. Ah, but don't you fret. Uh, Wendelin's a real lady. Uh, you'll see. While he was talking, Gill and Edwin pulled the sails in about halfway. Now, shouted Gill. A uh, helm to lee, shouted Martin. He turned the wheel a quarter turn and held it steady. Wendelin began a lazy right turn. Gill and Edwin hooked up their chest rigs to their red lifelines and began feeding folds of net into the sea while the boat traced a wide circle. As Wendelin continued her turn, the sails fluttered and snapped. They weren't set for running, but Gill didn't want speed. He wanted a steady circle. The two of them continued to feed netting into the water. Martin could feel the wind was nearly at his back. They would cross soon. He took a deep breath and called out, Ready to jibe? In truth, he was nowhere near ready. But with the boat's course, it was going to happen soon, whether he was ready for it or not. Ready, called back Gill. Both he and Edwin crouched low on the deck with a wary eye on the foresail boom. Martin took a deep breath, his eye on the mains boom. When the wind crossed over Wendelene's stern, coming from the starboard quarter instead of her port, the two big sails hung limp for a moment. Their booms wavered. Martin ducked as the big booms swung casually from right to left. The sails set with none of the violence that Martin had expected. He blew out the breath he had held. The last of the net slid over the side, 
The deck looked naked. The top cable snapped tight on the stern cleat. Good work, Hillsider. Keep her coming around to attack. Uh, we'll trim for close hauled and make speed to catch our flag. Gill pointed to the little yellow flag that bobbed into view now and then. It marked the end of their net. As Gill and Edwin pulled the sails in, Martin steered closer to the wind. Wendeline heeled harder to the left and picked up speed. Okay, cut her over, Gill had to shout to be heard over the whistle of the wind and the flap of the sails. Ready to come about, Martin shouted. Tacking was much less nerve-wracking than jibing. Ready! Martin turned the wheel quickly. Wendeline's bow crossed the wind. It was all too fast for her to get stuck in irons. The sails quickly swung across the deck. When they began to fill with wind, Martin stopped the turn. Wendeline surged eagerly, like a dog chasing a tennis ball. Edwin leaned over the side, still attached to his lifeline. He had a long gaff in his hand. With it, he snagged the float with the yellow flag. He and Gill hauled the line aboard. The circle of yellow floats got smaller. Ah, we've got em, shouted Gill. Silvery fish could be seen thrashing about in the waves. Heave her to, Hillsider. Lash her down and come help us haul in. Martin steered the boat, bow into the wind. She slowed to a stop. The sails flapped like flags. He started to lash down the wheel, but the bow drifted left. The sails began to fill again. Martin dialed in a little more starboard helm and started to lash the wheel. She drifted to port again. She won't stay in irons. Uh, she keeps drifting to port, Martin said. Oh, Wendelin, scolded Gill. You don't get all naughty on us now. He fussed with the sheets to loosen the sails even more. It didn't help. Oh, bah, there's no use arguing with a woman. Give her a bit of the port tack that she wants, Hillsider. Lash her down and get over here. Martin secured the wheel. He took up position between Gill and Edwin. They each hauled up on the net, pulling it into a pile on the deck. Martin stood in the hole. He pulled in the middle, creating folds of net at his feet. The wet netting was ice cold. His hands grew red, stiff, and numb. Here they come, said Gill. Pull hard. The catch was concentrated in the last purse of netting. As the three men pulled in the heavy load, struggling fish slid over the rail, around Martin's legs, and into the hold. The final mass of fish flowed past Martin as Gill and Edwin pulled in the last stretch of net. Oh, great job, crew! What a fine haul! Gill patted Martin and Edwin on the back. Martin basked in the moment. He tried to put his gloves on, but his hands were too stiff. He grimaced at the shock of putting his cold hands in his armpits to warm them. Gill pointed to the piles of net strewn along the deck. Edwin nodded. The net lay in slumber party chaos all over the starboard deck. He began pulling the net into more coherent piles and lashing it down. I put her in a close port reach until we're squared away. Gill began breaking up his buckets of ice, strewing the chunks over the wriggling mass in the hold. Oh, looks like we're not alone any more," said Martin. With his one-gloved hand, he pointed to a boxy white vessel coming up behind them from the south. From the dark plume of smoke pouring out of her funnels, it was clear the newcomer's diesel engines were at full speed. On its current heading, it would pass between Wendeline and shore. Uh, that looks like a ferry. Aye, that she does, but not one from around here, Gill said. Uh-oh, this can't be good. He pointed aft of starboard. 
a Coast Guard patrol boat was approaching from the southeast. A similar plume of black smoke and a broad white mustache at her bow indicated that she was coming fast. I'm going to get the radio tuned in. I bet there's something going on. Gill squatted in front of his radio in the deckhouse. Restricted waters. Repeat, MV Marianne. This is Coast Guard Boston. You are entering restricted waters. Reverse course immediately. Do you copy? There was only static in reply. MV Marianne. This is Coast Guard Cutter Bonamoy. WPB 1326. Ordering you to reverse course. You have entered restricted waters. Come about immediately. This is Captain Franks of the Marianne. Uh, we're on a humanitarian mission. We're bringing food and fuel to hungry people in Portsmouth. Captain Franks, stop your vessel immediately. Food and fuel are contraband. Stop your vessel. Prepare to be boarded. Restricted waters? Martin asked Gill. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, the feds declared waters off New Hampshire's coast to be a restricted zone. No cargo in or out. Uh, the state is an active crime area, or something. I never quite understood that. I've heard something similar, said Martin. They've closed all the highways at the borders, too. Gill nodded. Well, not long after the restricted zone was declared, a tanker was bound into Portsmouth. Coast Guard cutter out of Boston intercepted it. They declared the cargo as contraband and took the ship to Boston. Oh, boy, but that made the commander of the Portsmouth Coast Guard station madder than hornets. Uh, there were still all kinds of hot tempers on the radios for a few days afterward. Oh, why did this ferry captain think he could get through? Martin mused out loud. He must have thought if he hugged the coast he could get past them, Yale said. Marianne was coming up fast, passing Wendelin to port. Monomoy was closing fast to starboard on an intercept course. Wendelin was directly between hammer and nail. Marianne, stop your engines immediately and prepare to be boarded for inspection. Stop, or we will have to take steps to prevent you from proceeding in restricted waters. After a few minutes of static, Martin saw puffs of smoke from the bow of Monomoy. A half second later, the sound of thud, thud, thud shook the air. Despite the wind, he thought he could hear whistling overhead. Three tall plumes of water jumped into the air ahead of Marianne. They're shooting? Martin crouched reflexively. Since when can the Coast Guard shoot at people? Duh, times are different now, Hillsider, said Gill. They're all treated like drug runners nowadays. Well, the cutter is coming up fast, said Martin, and we're right in their way. Pan, 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 pan. This is MV Marianne calling all stations, all stations. A hostile ship has fired on us. Position is 42.893 north, 70.764 west. Heading 018. Making 12 knots. Repeat. A hostile ship has fired on us. Please advise. Please assist. Please assist. All stations, ignore Pan Pan. This is Coast Guard Boston in pursuit of vessel. A different voice came over the radio. Coast Guard WPB 87356, responding to vessel in distress. Martin stooped to peer under the boom. Ahead and to port was another Coast Guard boat sending up big fans of spray as it sped toward the scene. 
Another one? Now what? Martin asked. Uh, hold her steady, hillsider. Last thing we need to do is something all of a sudden in the middle of these three. Stay predictable. Gil studied the newcomer with his big binoculars. Hmm, that sailfish out at the Portsmouth station. Yeah, they must have known something was up and left Portsmouth a while back. Wonder what the heck they're doing. Coast Guard 56, MV Marianne, is not in distress. She is being stopped for search for contraband per code 33, part 3.05-10. Assistance is not needed. Stay clear. Copy that, 26, but be advised that Captain Volker has not confirmed that code 33 is indeed in effect. 56, we are not going to argue orders. The Rear Admiral has instated code 33. All unauthorized ships will be inspected and taken to port. Stay clear. Um, copy all that, 26. There was some open mic muttering and the sound of another radio in the background. 26, uh, Volker has dispatched Reliance to inspect MV Marianne. Sailfish is, uh, responding to a distress call from the small scooter ahead your port side. Do you copy? What? Uh, yes, we have a visual on a small schooner. Pilot to schooner, said the Sailfish's radio operator. Please come about to heading 080 so we can come alongside and assist you. Do you copy? What are you doing, Sailfish? That will put him right across our... Um, roger that, Sailfish, Gil said into the mic. Turning to 080, uh, thanks for responding to our call. You heard the man, said Gil. Bring her about to 080. But that'll put us right across the path of that big cutter. I think I see Sailfish's game, Hillsider. Uh, let's be good little pawns and come about. Martin shrugged. Okay, coming about. To himself, he muttered, and I thought jibing was scary. Schooner, negative. Abort turn. Abort. Do not... Muffled swearing could be heard. Monomoy started a hasty evasion turn to starboard. Martin could see that Sailfish had started a wide and lazy turn, too, which would force Monomoy even farther off her intercept course. Marianne was powering away toward Portsmouth white foam churning up from her stern. She looked like she had just enough of a lead to get to port before Monomoy could come back around and catch up. Five, six, you will be reported for this. Uh, two, six, so uh, what was that? Uh, your last message was garbled, but thank you for your assistance with the distressed schooner. We can take it from here. Thanks again. Uh, five, six, clear. Ho, ho, ho! howled Gil. That was quite the game, eh? Some game, getting run over by a hundred-foot cutter, chided Martin. Upshaw, said Gil. Sailfish idled past Wendelin, fifty yards to windward. Thank you, gentlemen, called the man from the railing. The man waved as Sailfish powered up and turned for port. Gil waved. Well, that's enough fun for one day, hillsider. Uh, let's walk the girl to her door. Uh, we've got a catch to unload before dark. Martin is a sailor. What's all that about, eh? 
This nautical adventure section might seem like a non-sequitur out of left field. I put it in as a glimpse of life beyond Cheshire, a look at how other communities in New Hampshire were also adapting to the grid-down world. It's meant to show the start of a broader, rudimentary economy developing in spite of the siege. I don't know if any of you read along with the narration. Does anyone do that? If you did, you'll have noticed that this fishing trip section was quite different. The overall action remains the same as in the book, but I made many little changes. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with my supporters at Buy Me a Coffee that after rereading Chapter 8 for narration, I wanted to rewrite that fishing trip section. I wanted to change it such that the wind came out of the northwest instead of the southeast. That sounds kind of trivial, but for a sailboat, it changes almost everything. I hoped the rewrite would also make the story read a little smoother, too. Well, that was it. I hope it flowed better for you. Now, on to Chapter 9.